Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting a local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Black Diamond is proud to sponsor the Climbing Advocate podcast. A longtime partner access fund, Black Diamond champions conservation, preservation, and access to mountain, crag, and canyon environments while striving to minimize their environmental footprint. We are deeply grateful for their commitment to protect America's climbing. Visit blackdiamondequipment.com and search for sustainability for more information. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate podcast, episode number 35, a conversation with Felipe Proano. Felipe is a professional climber on the South American North Face team and is the founder of Fundacion de Acceso Andino, which is essentially the Ecuadorian Access Fund. I first learned about Felipe at last year's annual climbing advocacy conference, where he was part of a workshop panel talking about best practices and local community engagement, and it was undoubtedly one of the most impactful workshops I have ever attended, like ever, of all time. The stories that were shared at demonstrating the power climbing can have in bringing prosperity to underserved com- communities was just remarkable. And playing into his adventurous nature, Felipe has found a way to bring climbing to rogue communities through root development and many first ascents, but does so in a way that is unique and it benefits everyone, particularly the ones in these communities. We talked at great length about the social climate around Ecuador, the challenges facing rural communities and protected areas, and his vision for how the outdoor community can help diversify the local economy while also preserving their local culture at the same time. Felipe is very in tune and so well-spoken on the health and economic challenges that are very common across these communities, and I'm not sure if there's anyone more qualified to be in this leadership role. As Felipe says, Ecuador has the arms of a T-Rex. The resources just don't stretch very far to be able to help communities in need and help take care of the protected areas in Ecuador, and for that matter, around the greater Andean nation, which includes Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia. Felipe expresses a deep level of gratitude for the climbing community here in the States and for the larger platform that the Access Fund and the Climbing Initiative as well have helped provide him and Fundacion de Acceso Andino. 
While our cultures may differ, issues that face the climbing community there are remarkably similar. I mean, trails, bathroom signage, old bolts, it's all the same. For me, it really drove home the point that we're all in this together and we all really have to support each other whenever possible. I'm incredibly grateful to be able to share Felipe's story here and the great work that's going on from our friends in the Southern Hemisphere. But before I get the episode going here, there's one announcement I need to make about joining thousands of other climbers and becoming an Access Fund member, then we'll get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Felipe Proano. At Access Fund, we are on a mission to lead and inspire the climbing community towards sustainable access and conservation of the climbing environment. So far this year, we've saved Colorado's iconic thumb and needle, helped climbers buy a major new crag in Tennessee, awarded over $25,000 in climbing conservation grants, and so much more. When you become an Access Fund member today for just $40, we'll throw in a free t-shirt with original artwork by Alexander Rubio. Members will also qualify for some pretty cool perks like discounts at outdoor brands and other pro deals. Plus, you'll be making a direct investment in protecting America's climbing. To become a member, visit accessfund.org forward slash 40 member. That's accessfund.org forward slash 40-M-E-M-B-E-R. He took some fatalities late, uh, lately and uh, no there's of an indigenous strike happening soon. So oh, wow. good old Ecuador. Was, uh, were the fatalities uh, skiing fatalities or climbing? Uh, it was climbing. It was climbing. climbing, yeah. Oh, wow. Anyone you knew? Well, just just by name. Okay. But um, unfortunately, it, it, was a bi- it was a big slide. It was like a, at least a D3, D, maybe D4 slide. It was huge in Chimborazo. Wow. No way. So, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, unfortunately, we've been kind of, you know, regretting that. But um, yeah, trying to learn from it as well. Wow, what's uh, what's the uh, indigenous strike all about? Uh, well, those happens very frequently. Uh, mostly, it's because of um, gas prices, but sometimes it's because of destabilization purposes. Like politically, Ecuador is pretty volatile. It's pretty, um, what's the word I would use? It's, it's well, it's definitely interesting, but it's also it's a mess, a huge mess. So yeah, hope, hoping this one's not going to be as bad as the one we got two years ago. That you know, burn down cities and stuff like that. I feel like I've heard, heard about that in the past and wow. Um, Is that happening close to you? So usually, well, I live in Quito, but usually the strikes uh, happen in the, like the main column of the country, which is the Andes Mm -hmm. from North to South and highways are blocked and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I hope it doesn't get, that bad because on Friday I'm leaving for a big trip, big expedition here in the jungle. So I hope we can travel with ease. Yeah, yeah, of course. I hope so too. Um, so you're in Quito. How long uh, have you have you always lived in Quito? Have you bounced around a little bit? I want to. I'd love to hear a little bit about your uh, yeah your lifestyle a little bit. Uh, no, pretty much. I I live in Quito. I've lived all my life. I was you know born here, uh, grew up here, and. Um, the only place I bounce around a bunch is the U.S. Um, you know, lived there for a few, not consecutive, but a few years. And um, mostly I've spent most of my time in Ecuador in the last, you know, 10 years. Uh-huh. I didn't, so you actually did live in the U.S. for a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a, Well, I was a student in the U.S. 
before that I did a bunch of, you know, touristic trips. And then I've, you know, landed a bunch of jobs in the U.S. as well since 2013, 2012. So I've been able to, you know, spend um, not long terms because as a tourist in the U.S., you're not allowed to stay too long. Right. Uh, but as a, if you have a job, you can stay a maximum, I think it's six months or something like that. Oh, so I've been only able to, six months? Wow. I think so. It depends on what job you get. But uh, for my job purposes, I think I was only allowed to stay for like six months or something like that. So I've been able to do that a bunch of times. What uh, what kind of jobs have you had? Well, I I started with Nolts and um, eventually migrated into the Colorado Hour Bound School. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, did a bunch of training instruction there and then uh, worked for five or six years for them. Gotcha. My wife worked for the Colorado Outward Bound School. She spent time in Ecuador. I can't say exactly where or what mountain she did, but um, when I mentioned that I was going to be chatting with you today, she's like, oh, does she know this person or, or does Felipe know this person or this person? You might have some some uh, some friends in common. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I've, I found people in common everywhere because, you know, the industry is so small. So, yeah, I, I, I see an outdoor educator and I think I read somewhere you're working on, uh, you're working on like the IFMGA uh, pen and you're in being a full blown guide. Um, well, yes, yes and no, because um, I, I, I did started the training to become an IFMGA guide when the school opened here in Ecuador. Because um, Ecuador formed part of the IVNGA not long ago, and um, in the last couple of years, I've, I've mostly focused on my personal stuff as an athlete, yeah, and done a bunch of exploration expeditions. So I haven't had that much time for the actual guiding, um, which I hope I can, you know, re like catch that on the future, um, on the nearby future. But as for now, I stand more trying to develop. Um, the personal, the nonprofit aspect of the things I have, that I do rather than, than guiding. I know you're quite, uh, from what I can gather on social media, everything, you're quite the exploratory uh, climber. I mean, you, it seems like you're psyched in all different styles uh, from mountaineering to cragging, trad, sport, whatever. And you know, you're an athlete for the, for the North Face team and everything. And of course, their tagline is never stop exploring. So you, I think you're a pretty good fit for that team. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, but yeah, well, well, when when it comes, you know, for the North Face, I, I have to be very clear on this one. I am part of what is the North Face based out in South America, like in Ecuador. So, you know, a bunch of people ask me in the U.S., oh, I mean, are you part of, you know, the U.S. team and, and you know, climb with the legends? And, and I'm like, no, man, I mean, I wish, I wish. I mean, I, I, I knock on their door every year, but as for now, you know, I stand in, in the South American part, not not in the U.S., Got it. Copy. Loud and clear. Uh, are there other other athletes in Ecuador or Quito or anywhere else around you? Uh, not for now, but um, there is an athlete from Peru that is a close friend. Um, there is a bunch of athletes from Colombia that are, I think, a, one or two generations older than me. Mm-hmm. That we've you know hung out a bunch, but not not climbed, not exactly climbed anything together. And then the Chile and the Brazil, you know, components are, are different worlds, you know, very, very different. And, but I do know the, the people there who climb um, that are absolutely incredibly strong athletes. Um, that's always, it's always good to see, you know, what they're up to. 
Yeah, of course. Well, I love watching what you're up to and what I've seen lately is I feel like you've been posting a lot about the the columns, like those, uh, I think it's basalt maybe, like the splitter basalt columns with like the splitter cracks in it and everything. And like that really caught my attention. That looks amazing. Like <laughs> yeah. when we locked down this interview or, you know, exchange the emails, I, I couldn't help myself but to look up flights to Quito and see how much it costs to get down there. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, the columns... Um... The, the name is actually the cones of Tangan. Tangan. And it's okay. it's just a magical, you know, mystic place. We were really lucky to 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 stumble upon it pretty much uh, through through exploration and discovery in the year 2013 with a close friend from the US. His name is uh, Steve, Steve Lozano. He's a he's a famous character known in, in Colorado in Oregon as well. He moved to Ecuador pretty much because because you know Tangan was found. Um mm-hmm. And another good friend from the U.S., Keith Keith Brett, who is also uh, a Western alumni, you know, from Ghanison. Um, really. So with those two, we've we've done you know most of the development in Tangang. Um, but yeah, if you have the chance to you know get down there and do some splitter cracks, it's it's pretty it's it's its own thing, I guess, because you have world class splitters, you know, super super nice cracks, but in this jungle environment. So you're fighting things like, yes, bushy, mossy, wet conditions, you know, mud, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but you also have the nature surrounding you, the waterfall, hundreds of types of birds, the jungle animals. And, and what's most important for us is the people who actually live there, mm-hmm. um, Don Ramiro and family, which are the landowners of that place. And the people who have not only opened the doors there for climbing, but also shown us their world, you know, their culture, how they work and, and, and survive each day and how we have been able at some extent to, you know, change their, their economical conditions um, in, in some aspect. So for us, Tangang is an incredible, very valuable case study and it's an incredible destination. So yeah, if you're interested, um, let me know and I'll give you all the beta. Oh man, I'm I'm very interested. I'd love to meet you down there sometime there. And and I looked I looked up the uh, the E35. I think it's called. I got the tab open right now. Um, yeah, just another. Uh, it looks like a more of a sport climbing crag close to Quito. Yeah, um, unfortunately, that place um, was shut down last year um, with uh, other similar areas near near Quito because okay. of several reasons. But um, you know the. The ugly truth, you know, access for climbing areas come and go all the time. Mm-hmm. And yes, we've dealt with them in different fronts, tried our best to make them work, make it happen for everyone. But sometimes we have to lose them temporarily. So unfortunately, that one is closed. But Ecuador has many other, many other locations. Some of them are quite new. Some of them are more, you know, all the older side. Um, but that's a good thing about Ecuador. It's, you know, a very diverse country. You can see all the aspects of our biodiversity in one single trip. Um, so that's that's pretty, I mean, at least for me, that's one of the reasons I like Ecuador so much. Yeah. Well, you're really, you're selling it really well. And I definitely, I've never have climbed internationally. Uh, I've only, only been around um, mostly the Western United States. But if I was going to make a, a first international trip, this might be the, my first choice. <laughs> so cool. Good to hear. Happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, you kind of alluded to just a little bit here, talking about the family that owns the the, the columns of Tangan uh, area and everything and working with them and whatnot. And I first heard about you after watching your workshop at the Access Funds Advocacy Conference last year, when it's virtual and much of the focus is on international communities and everything. And you talked about best practices and local community engagement, the due diligence that is needed before starting a climbing area, and how it requires building a real solid foundation of trust to ensure that climbing can benefit everyone. And man, I, I got to tell you, like, that was one of the most powerful workshops I have ever, I mean, ever listened to. And I've gone to several of these annual conferences now that Access Fund hold, uh, hosts every year and, you know, many other workshops for all different kinds of topics and everything. And that workshop was incredibly moving uh, between the, the Pan Am organization and uh, the organization that you had founded, which we'll get into a little bit later. It was just incredibly moving. And the stories you were able to, to share just damn near brought a tear to my eye, particularly when you showed the picture of the, the window in the school. And yeah. I... Maybe you can elaborate on that some more later, but um, getting this more global perspective uh, on the, this, the global climbing community has had a profound impact on, on everything climbing for me in the most positive of ways. And your story and your work really shows what climbing can really do beyond just being a selfish pursuit for, for oneself. So I was hoping we can kick off this first topic a little bit on the uh, economic and health challenges facing rural communities in Ecuador by sharing a story or an anecdote you have about a meeting, like a town hall kind of meeting you had about developing a climbing area and you needed to go get like the one light bulb in the town to plug in to host this meeting. Could you share that story with us to, to get things rolling? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, before that, I, I would really, really be uh, like to be super clear about this. Um, I am extremely thankful for the space um, and everything pretty much the Access Fund has done with our organization and, and with me personally, because uh, sharing these stories in this space is extremely valuable uh, for us and, and I, I bet for more people as well. Um, I am one of those users who have had the privilege of visiting the US from Florida to Alaska and from California to Maine, like all around all around the country. And, and I am always, you know, so impressed so astonished of how things are run in such a good way with sustainability, you know, with advocacy. So I just want to say a big thanks for the space. And, and, and if there's any other way I can contribute as a user, I mean, as a foreign user, then, then I'll be glad to. Um, but yeah, with, uh, with that story, um, that was really, really interesting. It was an important episode in my life for sure. It was an eye opener as well as a, like you know hitting a wall and and being like we we really need to get this project going um that location is called the towers of simiatu and it's uh located up in the andes of ecuador at an altitude of almost fifteen thousand feet so it's pretty high and we stumbled upon these basalt towers basalt and andesite towers in the year 2018 and uh we started you know climbing and exploring them and we found that they were run or ruled, as, as you can say it, by the local indigenous community. In the year 2019, Ecuador had a huge, huge strike, um, mostly led by the indigenous communities and peoples of Ecuador, which pretty much burned the entire nation to the ground, including highways, cities, 
buildings. Um, it, it, it was a you know a powerful message, but it was it was unfortunately very violent. And after that strike, the indigenous community of this place, the towers of Simiatu, didn't trust us anymore as much as they did before, um, because they were seeing these you know people from the city with all this fancy clothing and gear coming in their land and trying to you know climb. So in order for us to regain this trust, we summoned all the indigenous community. The community is called Cocha Colorada, which means a red lagoon in the community school. And I, that, that day was kind of chaotic. Our cars got, um, the battery of the car drained. So I had to run from the towers into town uh, all by myself. All, all my friends and crew were trying to fix the car. It was kind of like a mayhem. But as soon as I got there, all the community was kind of impatient. They have been waiting me for uh, at least an hour. And um, I had to address them and tell them, this is who we are. This is rock climbing. Pretty much explain everything from a climbing shoe to a bolt and a drill. And tell them how climbing is going to develop. But before I started, I saw the poverty, the scarcity of resources of these people because we were hosting this kind of meeting in the local community school. In the local community school, all the windows were smashed. There was not a light bulb, so I had to, you know, ask for someone to go get the light bulb from their personal house to bring it so we can have illumination. And it was it was a very, very interesting episode, totally eye-opener. And we did a good job because the indigenous community re, like we re, regained the trust with them and a partnership started in order to develop the location and you know give them the means or give them the ways to keep their cultural identity while you know receiving tourists for rock climbing uh, so it was also a very positive case study and this happened at the end of 2019 so it's been a few years now so were you developing the area prior to meeting with the community? So we had we had made a initial meeting when we first discovered the area, but it was in 2018, December 2018. But unfortunately, that meeting didn't receive that many people because we were not um, we were not famous amongst them. Like we had a small group had found this great location, started climbing. We talked to a few of their leaders, but not to the whole community itself. Now, trying to understand the um, politics behind this or how the indigenous people of the Andes are structured in the land, um, there is one or two main leaders, but everyone has a, a voice, everyone has a vote, so to speak. So if you only talk to the leaders, that might not be you know, the most useful way to address them. You have to reach out to the entire community. Now, a way to collect all of the community in one same place, in one same moment, is very difficult. It's not as easy as it sounds. Right. Because these people have to be working the land all day long in order to produce food. There's barely any money, like there's barely any cash involved in their transactions. They mostly, you know, produce the food through agriculture and, and, and cattle uh, that what they, they need. Uh, so we had to, you know, set up a time and date and gather them and, and be able to talk to them all at once. 
Um, how many how many people are there, roughly? Well, this community has I think fifty or sixty families. Okay. Um, but in the community meeting, there was um, maybe fifty or sixty people. Okay, that's that seems like a pretty decent turnout. Yeah, and um, the the downside of this was that I was all by myself because we were prepared to make this like presentation with a bunch of the crew members, but because our car got you know damaged, um, I had to literally run uh, from the towers up to the town uh, to try to make it to the meeting on time. And and I I'm a really terrible bad runner because I have um uh, I have eight metal pins in my in my right ankle, so I can't oh, wow. really run. I, I never run. Yeah. So yeah, it, 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 it was definitely an interesting episode, but um, we were really glad it worked out. Um, and and yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, I do have some interesting things about that uh, worth mentioning. For example, uh, the indigenous people were thinking or assuming that we were um, we were miners, that we were actually mining the rock. Wow! Because okay. they were seeing people enter at night with headlamps. They were hearing these gigantic explosions, which were us, you know, trending big sized blocks in order to make the route safer. Yep. And they were look they were seeing also in our gear uh, drills, you know, power tools. So someone in the community was kind of hesitant and was saying, You guys are stealing our minerals. And We've, I mean, we've seen this happen before in the Andes of Ecuador with 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 minery or or mining, but we had to, you know, confront that and say like, no, we are not mining. On the other hand, we would like to conserve this place as it is with the least minimum impact as possible, because um, it's also a water source. The Andes of Ecuador are big water sources, uh, so we want to keep the water clean. Right. You're very well versed in these uh, challenges facing the, these rural communities, and you seem very connected with these folks now. Could you specify some of those uh, economic and health challenges so maybe folks listening can understand like what these communities might be facing and how you're able to help them out? Absolutely. So every community we've worked with, um, and in the work, when, when I say we, I'm talking about our nonprofit organization, which is called Fundación Acceso Andino, which is pretty much um, literally a version of the Access Fund, but here in the Andes, that's why we call it <laughs> very similar name. Um, <laughs> and it's, it is a nonprofit organization, and, and our work is exactly that. Um, but every case that we worked has its own specifics. However, one of the, or the two most important case studies are this one, Simiato in the towers and, and Tangang, the, the basalt columns. Um, but for the towers, we since since we ever got there, we started facing um, the reality of the people that live there, and the reality is what brought us the economic kind of aspect of things. For example, we hire the services of uh, of an, a small horse or a small mule to carry the gear and the bolts and everything that's heavy, ropes, etc., to the base camp. Um, for a very moderate wage of, you know, $20, or I think it was $25. Uh, but $25 for a person who lives there is pretty much what they will spend in a month. For us in the city, 
that is, you know, an expensive meal, maybe, you know, four or five cups of coffee, something similar. Uh, I'm talking about Ecuadorian prices, but for them, it was like a very, very valuable amount of money. And that also told us that we, instead of, you know, just paying for their services, we wanted to create an alliance, create a partnership, be friends in this one, like work together rather than just, you know, paying for services. Um, but the reality of the people there was that they were extremely, extremely poor. Um, and that has many, many sociological and historical connotations in the Andean region, including, you know, other nations as well. But we also saw that health and education were absolutely missing. I mean, the Ecuadorian state has, the arms of the Ecuadorian state are the size of a T-Rex. They cannot reach, you know, the locations they want to or they have to. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, basic rights and needs. Um, and this you see replicated in Peru very, very similarly, in Bolivia even more, uh, which are other Andean nations. But in general, women in this town, you know, were, were dying of, um, you know, urinal tract infections. There was no antibiotics. There was no, you know, healthcare institution. So we were like, we're like we, we need to start figuring all these things out. Talking to several government agencies is extremely hard in places like Ecuador because of politics, because of corruption, because of bureaucracy. Um, so through the to the private industry and private companies, we started, you know, making fundraisers, raising raising funds to slowly start, you know, incrementing the capabilities of our project and uh, the amount of people that can be influenced. So back in the day, we applied, for example, for grants with the Honold Foundations or the or the Ford Foundation. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get them, but that also opened the eyes of okay, we we need to work thoroughly on specific projects, uh, not exactly rock climbing related, but that bring tourism. And that's when this idea triggered, and it and right now it's working, and and we're really happy. The people from this town, from Simiatu, are very good. Um, Tailor makers. I mean, they 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 make pieces of clothing with alpaca or llama wool, and they are extremely talented. It's like an ancestral technique they've been using for, you know, hundreds of years. So we decided to invest some capital and make it work. And and now they are you know weaving and uh, selling it through fair trade, trying to make an extra income. And that's when I was given a very important gift which is hanging here in my room. I was given um, like a memorial or a commemoration piece of clothing handmade, which is um, me actually climbing one of the towers. Um, wow. And it's a very special gift. It's like pretty much priceless because uh, yeah. it's handmade. And um, the extra copies that I got because uh, it was given as a gift. People people in, in this town in Simiatu call me uh, the Mashi, the Mashi, it's, it means friend in the Quechua language because most of the people from the city or the government or in the case of Ecuador, the Catholic Church um, are not that welcome in their town, but we are. So they were calling me the, the Mashi, like the friend, and they give to me this, this very special gift. Um, wow. So that was, that was really memorable. Yeah, of course. I mean, you got this incredible vision and in how the outdoor community can help diversify local economy and, and preserve local culture at the same time. 
and you you looked beyond just p- paying for services. And I'm wondering, uh, just paying you know paying for the services to haul gear in and whatnot. And but you're, you said something about reinvesting some capital into helping this uh, this tailorship continue in the community. Is that capital coming from something other than paying for their services? Yes, yes, we will we'll, we'll be really, we were lucky before the pandemic to secure some funding through sponsorships and through donations, uh, doing several activities related to rock climbers and, and the industry behind rock climbing. And they were, I am extremely, extremely grateful for what those people did in that time. Um, but then unfortunately, after the pandemic, we also had to respect that area a lot because with the health infrastructure they have plus you know the i won't call it the lack of education but the lack of the reach of education to places like this they became its own city states they closed the doors and they were like no one's gonna come in here like sorry Uh, and that happened in many other places in the in the south american region in particular so we had to respect that area and our projects were you know kind of shut down and um, we are still up to this day trying to let, you know, things develop smoothly before, you know, going back with full force. And that is, you know, based upon uh, respect rather than, you know, trying to keep rock climbing. Um, you know, I mean, at the end, I am a, a, yeah, I am a professional rock climber, so I really want to climb there. But there's so many things in peril that uh, we prefer to take a way more cautious stance and, and let things recover smoothly rather than just go there. Right, right. Yeah, they can't afford to have any kind of uh, infection or you know have the virus go through their community because they would they would have no resources to help to help cure it. <laughs> exactly. Imagine. Yeah. Um, when did you find yourself playing? a leadership role in these issues? Is this something you've been aware of for a long time, just growing up around and being familiar with it and being, uh, you know, close to it? Or did this, um, did a lot of this kind of blossom out of climbing and out of your athletic pursuits or did it just come well before that? I think it came um, well before that because um, I do come from a position of privilege in the Ecuadorian society, but I'm also one of those people from privilege that um, have decided to leave the city to, you know, travel to very remote locations of my own country. I am one of the few Ecuadorians that knows the 24 provinces or like, as you can call in the U.S., the 24 states of Ecuador. Um, Not that many people have done that. And um, through other jobs and through connections with, you know, family and friends, I've been able to travel very remote locations, especially in the Amazon, because the Amazon region of Ecuador is the most vast, the most desolate and the poorest as well. Ironically, that's where we get all the petroleum, uh, like the oil from, which is Ecuador's main main source of income. But as soon as I saw the this real side of the world, as I call it, or this other side that people are not necessarily aware of, I started making these important distinctions. And then through my rock climbing career and mountaineering career, I started thinking we could, you know, make an extra impact here. Uh, I mean, talking about a positive impact. Because um, yes, sadly, many of the areas of the Ecuadorian national parks and protected areas are being destroyed, are being trashed as the days go by. But in our case, we were like, we want to try to make this sustainable for everyone. 
and um, that includes the people who live there. So when you go back to you know revising manuals or protocols of how to develop touristic locations, um, this comes from you know academic perspective of the of the Andean countries. None of them had like a positive interaction with the local community or landowners. Most of them were like, yeah, yeah, just go use the place, get in and get out as fast as you can. We we were like, no, this is wrong. We got to change this. Uh, started through the literature of the academic programs and then slowly, you know, develop into action, which is worth way more, in my opinion. But that's what, how, for example, the columns of Tangan are a positive case and they work. They work. Everyone is happy with the outcomes of Tangan. And and that's a crazy, crazy story that I will, I will you know, briefly elaborate on that one. But um, Tangan was actually found through a YouTube video um, where you saw the owner of the land with an with a old phone showing these incredible basalt columns on the background. And through the YouTube video is that, you know, Steve and a bunch of other friends um, started looking for this place in rural Ecuador. And it's so hidden from anywhere else that we, to this point, could still be looking for it. So we were really, really lucky to have found it. Wow. And when we got there, it was deserted. There was a house there. There was a small wooden house, but the owners were not living there because they needed the income and they were working on a small farm on the other side of the country. Two years after that, or around two years after that, they saw another video on YouTube, which is Steve and myself drilling some anchors. And they were like, hey, papi, papi, like, like, to Don Ramiro, his son was like, father, father, like there are some foreigners climbing in our land. Like <laughs> we should do something about this. Yeah. And in the next couple of months, they actually found us there. We, we were trespassing. We were entering the location with, with no permit because we didn't know who the owner was and we didn't know his phone number or ID or anything. And when he approached us, he was like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> Like pretty much. But then he saw that our will was both through sustainability of the location, protecting nature and trying to, you know, connect with him and his family. And he was like, okay, you guys are welcome here. And that's where a partnership started. Wow. Uh, much of this partnership is, is owed to, to, you know, my friend, Steve Lozano, who worked countless hours um, trying to find that place and, and creating it. And then m many other people, I, I would not have, have enough time to mention all of them, but to everyone who helped out, like that's a huge, huge thanks. Yeah. Amazing. So that landowner approached you, not like, what the hell are you guys doing here? I mean, maybe a little bit, but it was, it was just, it was a friendly conversation is what I gather. It wasn't uh, bombastic or, or confrontational. We, we were extremely lucky because I can, you know, count not that many occasions where conversations have been that friendly. Sure. Um, especially in Ecuador or, or in Peru. Peru is a bit, I would call it worse in this case, when, when people see you and they're like, what do you want? What are you doing here? Like, get out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to us this summer in a new location in Peru, unfortunately, which we can talk about later. But um, Don Ramiro and his family were super welcome. They were like, I know we've seen you guys are climbing. Like we know we didn't even think that was even a possibility, but now that you're here, this is my land. We 
take care of the animals. We take care of the native species. And it was for them, it was also kind of like a dream come true because from having land that wasn't producing as much as they needed to support their children, it became a source of income. And eight years from, from that point, which is now, you see that every single weekend, people visit the columns. They have become pretty famous. Um, much thanks to the work we've done, of course, but also because of the good treatment that you receive there and the cult cultural exchange. So that's a very, very valuable. Do you have to pay the family to access the columns? So we collaborate in different services. For example, we um, a night there is $5 which is really, really cheap. Mm -hmm. um, and a meal is $3. And I'm talking about like a huge meal. Uh, they also sell beer for those who want beer. Uh, there's trouts. There's, I mean, the infrastructure has, you know, slowly grown there to make things a bit more comfy. But there's no such thing as electric electricity, for example, or cell phone signal. Those things remain like that and we want them to remain like that. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And the... Uh, one of the best things is that we hire the services of this donkey called Socio. Socio in Spanish means like your partner, um, which was a, it was a pool. People, people pitched in money to buy a donkey for Ramiro so he can carry and shuttle beer and gear, <laughs> bolts and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's actually in one of the first pages of my, of my guidebook, because I, I, I published the Ecuadorian guidebooks for rock climbing. There's two of them which are published. And, and, and the second one includes Tangan and, and Socio the Donkey is one of the first pages. <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's so cool. Right on. Well, again, you're talking up this place. I really want to yeah, book a trip there at, at some point. Um, what's, what's the other landman? Uh, you, you, know, you, you mentioned some like protected areas, national parks, I think. And what, what does the other land management, land ownership look like outside of these private, privately owned lands where the columns are, for example? Yeah, so Ecuador and most mostly in Ecuador, the Andean nation. Um, so, so let me take a small step back here. Uh, the Andean nation, when I refer to the Andean nation, I, I refer to the Andean countries, but that is also very broad. When, when you talk about the Andean nation or the Andean communities, you're talking about four main countries, which are Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. Um, and, and we should have been for many historical occasions, the same place, like the same country. But history did not agree. So we are now independent nations. But anyway, we face the same problems because we are the same people, the same mix of races. And our geography is extraordinary, of course, but it's, it's all the same. So we face the exact same things. And I've seen this problem replicate from Colombia to Bolivia. Um, which is public land management. And it's extremely sad because many of the national parks of Ecuador or protected areas, which is, is like another, it's like an euphemism for a national park, do right. have rock climbing in them. But accessing the national parks through Ecuadorian or Peruvian or Colombian legal or, or laws that demand guides for foreigners or specific timeframes, like for example, you can only enter the park after eight and leave before three, stuff like that, really make it difficult for us to access those rock 
wells or other sports, other similar sports, and, and develop them for the wealth or for the well-being of everyone. And also we see them getting destroyed because the the Ecuador in its particular case, it's 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 a broke nation. Like our, our nation spends more than it makes. So we don't have enough resources to, you know, prevent areas from getting trashed, from getting totally destroyed. So I've been climbing for the last 20 years and I've seen areas like like San Juan, which is 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 a very I would call it like the rifle of Ecuador. It's a very cool sport climbing area below Chimborazo volcano get absolutely trashed. You see more routes. Every year there's, you know, 20, 30 new routes. What you don't see is below the routes the amount of, for example, human waste or trash or all the trees that have been cut down. Um, and the government, you know, doesn't even care to move one piece to make it better or mm-hmm. sustainable. I'm also talking about the inclusion of native species of, of raptors, of owls, of, you know, birds of prey that nest there that people keep impacting. So it's been really hard to face this government that tries to, you know, take a lot from you, but doesn't contribute. That has been extremely, extremely hard. Um, but the fight is still up. Like I will never, you know, cease to, you know, keep pushing, keep knocking on doors to make things more valuable. You can see that the Cocuy National Park in Colombia is shut down. It's been shut down for, I think, six years now because people trashed it. And the indigenous people that live there, the, the Iwas, they were like, okay, no one else is coming in because you're you know, trashing our sacred grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Peru, in, in, only inside the Huascarang National Park, which has endless amounts of, of granite, like I was... I was very, you know, lucky to open a few routes in that park this past summer. Um, you see the exact same problem. You know, people saying like, I don't care if this is a national park. This is land of the community. And if you don't pay, you're not getting in. Or on the opposite, you're just not getting in because you are not from here. Or you are, you know, a foreigner. Right. Um, while you see the area year by year by year just get trashed and depleted from its natural beauty. Uh, so we do see the same example happening in the Andean nations, unfortunately. Uh, now, working with the private area of things is way, way easier. Like we, if you approach a landowner that holds a piece of land and you propose the idea, talking with real numbers, you know, making uh, flowcharts, spreadsheets and tell them like, hey, this could actually, you know, work for you and for us has gotten way more positive case studies than trying to face the land that's protected by the public. Um, on the opposite, and this is why I'm extremely thankful for the Access Fund and, and other LCOs in the US, when I have traveled to the US, I've seen I've seen positive case studies, of course, but I, I like in many other things, the US for us is like a reference. You know, you see how things are managed, how rules are set up. And even if they are strict or not as strict, people obey them and people participate and contribute. I know that it's not everyone, but it's, in my opinion, it's a lot of people that do that. Um, So I'm always, you know, trying to compare that with the U.S. and and, and try to make or replicate things that here or in Peru, you know, will work really, really well.
if they were managed properly. I mean, there's been there's a lot of success success stories in the U.S. on on private land, um, but I think that. I don't know. In my mind, I feel like private land can, can often be harder to deal with. Perhaps here, you know, fences go up. This is my property. You know, people might be a little bit more wary about um, liability, things of that nature on, on private land here. But of course, you know, we've seen a ton of success stories. The Access Fund has, has promoted them and through things like conservation easements on private land to allow access for climbing and other activities in perpetuity. You know, it's definitely a very popular model to use here. And then um, then you get the public sphere with the national parks and stuff, which seem to, um, you know, be be pretty successful. I'm looking at a map of, of Ecuador right now, and there's Parque here, Parque there, Reserva here. I mean, there's all these protected looking areas all over the place. I mean, I'm scrolling over to... Uh, scrolling up to Colombia right now there's more there over to Bolivia and Peru I mean there it seems like there's parks everywhere yeah there's 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 a lot and and unfortunately you go back to this uh, reach of the state remember like the the arms of a T-Rex for example in in most of the protected areas of the Amazon jungle of Ecuador which is one of the most biodiverse places on earth you have people exploring wood inside the national park mm-hmm. and the government knows about it, but they can't do anything um, because it's just too far away. No resources. The Ecuadorian army is also really small and similar, you know, similar cases all throughout the region. Now back into, this is more of a perspective as an athlete. For example, I have faced um, a constant fight with the Ecuadorian authorities when I ask for permissions to run expeditions to go climb big wells in my own land. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, because of the bureaucracy and the politics involved, they are more like, no, you're, you're not allowed. Just, and I'm like, why? Just because no. So those kind of things really frustrated me, but you know, we keep fighting to, you know, try to make it equitable for everyone. Yeah. Um, but those, those are just, you know, small examples. You actually need to reach out to the government to ask for permission to do these kinds of things? Yes. In some cases, uh-huh. especially if they're inside a national park or a protected area. Uh-huh. For example, this Friday, I'm leaving um, for an expedition to try to climb the biggest wall in Ecuador, but uh, because we've tried that a bunch of times. But we have to ask for permission to the local authority of environment. And the first thing they say is no. So then you go through politics and bureaucracy and that takes a couple of weeks and then you reach the right person and you explain them and you're like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not talking about taking an army of 200 people uh, (laughs) to go into the jungle. It's only two of us. And they're like, okay, fine. Like you got it. (laughs) Stuff like that. Yeah. What's, uh, What's the name of that park? So the park that I'm entering this Friday is called the Yanganates National Park. It's um it's a mythical place that has legends of treasure and it's pretty brutal actually it's it's I think it's pretty high out there in the most um, adverse places I've ever visited maybe maybe top one um, because it's it's a very thick dense jungle mm-hmm. at fourteen thousand feet so it's it's pretty brutal. I mean, if if we succeed this year, um, I'll be I'll be you know promoting a bunch of content about it. But uh, who knows? You know, that's the adventure. That's where all well why we're here, right? 
try to figure it out. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, your, your taste for adventure is, is obvious. And I know you love to, this little side tangent, but, uh, I think I've seen you say the black Canyon is perhaps your favorite spot in the U S is that yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like a, just a stone's throw away from my house, pretty much like a little over an hour away. And that's, that's so cool that you've made such a connection to, you know, where I live in a small part of, of Colorado. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because, um, well, and, and once more, I want to be very, very thankful to everyone who has uh, received me and my friends and um, my climbing partners in the U.S. Because the U.S. seeing, you know, constant foreigners trying to climb El Cap or go to the Red or, you know, many other locations. Mm-hmm. And people are welcoming. People are like, hey, you know, where are you from? I mean, you're def- you're obviously not from here because of your accent. So tell me more about where are you from and, 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 and those engaging conversations, like the friendship of people receiving you, that's extraordinary. Uh, you don't really see that in other countries, but in the U.S. you do. So I'm extremely thankful for everyone who has, you know, opened open their arms um, wow. for receiving foreigners. Um, but when I travel to the U.S. and people ask me, you know, where are you from? How's, your, how's the climbing down there? Blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned the Black Canyon. Most people don't even know that the black exists. <laughs> yeah. And that for me is crazy. And I'm like, dude, really? Like the black in Colorado, like, I mean, check it out. Um, but yeah, it is one of my favorite locations. I think it might be my favorite. Uh, I don't know why it just, you know, appeals to me. Um, of course, it's really hard to beat uh, the valley. You know, Yosemite is pretty out out there as sure. well in, in the Sierras, mm-hmm. but uh, in Alaska as well. But, you know, the black i i really had some great great adventure there yeah me too <laughs> um yeah i think it's one of the like the least visited national parks in the country i i've heard it said that it's the least visited but i'm not sure if that's accurate or not but yeah there's not too many people that uh that um that visit that place and you know, there's obviously you know the grand canyon and and teton and the grand tetons and you know somebody that kind of overshadowed the black canyon but man yeah when i've taken my parents there before and some other friends and you know you can't see it since it's like a giant hole in the ground you just nothing to like look at until you're up up at it <laughs> and once they see it they're like i mean their jaw just hits the ground it's just like oh my god goodness I mean, <laughs> it's just so narrow steep and just drops at your feet you know two thousand feet down to the gunnison river it's it's very impressive i personally don't climb there anymore um because of personal reasons uh but uh yeah it's it's an incredible incredible place it's it's so amazing yeah man and um that's why you know i i, I always enjoy going to the u.s no matter for how long and and you know trying to climb there yeah, there is there is actually um, yeah a, a, a big chance you know I, I'll I'll be moving into the Gunnison area pretty soon. Um, no way. So hopefully, hopefully I'll get to hang out a bit more up there. Um, I just want to base camp, if you can call it that way, more in the U.S. than down here, because it mm-hmm. makes it makes life a bit easier. Um, sure. So there's a big chance I'll be moving up to that region, but gotta let me know. Of course, let me know. of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean the cracking around here is, is fantastic. Uh, shh. 
I don't know. I might, I might get in trouble for saying that, but uh, yeah, it's great bouldering sport climbing tread. I mean, it's like, you know, four hours to the, Den- to the Denver area and all the great climbing out there, four hours to Moab and, and uh, like New Mexico, Taos area. It's kind of equidistant to a lot of great places, you know, a few hours from rifle. It's, it's pretty, it's a pretty good spot to be. It does get really cold and snowy in the winter, but um, yeah, it's, it's a good place to be. Absolutely, absolutely, totally agreed. Um, another place that I, you know, had the privilege of visiting for a while was was the Flagstaff area mm. uh, in Arizona, and I also really appreciate that area as well. Yeah, uh, it looks amazing. I haven't been there yet, but it looks yeah, it looks really good. Well, I'd love to discuss this organization maybe a bit more. Um, you know, the the Ecuadorian version of the Axis Fund, and you got four steps or four stages of project implementation outlined on the website that that really provide a nice holistic view of what this organization does and what its purpose is. And I wonder if we can maybe use one of the case studies that we discussed to maybe walk through these four steps or however you'd like to properly or uh, more appropriately uh, discuss what the organization is all about. Um, you know, these four steps ensure fair access to users, replace expired infrastructure, develop new routes, um, and promote the destination and its activities. Do you want to use one of those case studies to maybe discuss these four stages of project implementation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and well, first of all, uh, thanks for, for taking us in account. Uh, we're still a very small organization. Um, currently, unfortunately, I'm not the president of the, the organization because we 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 designed it so that they had different terms, and my term expired. Um, but I'm still on you know working with them and on top of things. Um, Fundación Access Andino, or the Andean Access Foundation, if you would translate it to English, uh, started because we we started finding all these problems, and we needed this institution, this like mechanism or, or engine to work work things through. Back in the day, if there was a problem, it was, you know, me with a power drill trying to fix it with a bunch of friends. And we had great experience, great times behind that, but we needed the formality, we needed the institution in order to make things legit. Right. And uh, that's why the, the foundation got created in the first place. And uh, it, it was a nightmare in order to create a nonprofit in Ecuador. It took several months and lawyers and fees and a bunch of other stuff. So it was a total nightmare, but we, we got it created. Um, and we were really proud of that. Uh, but yeah, then we decided this operation model, right? The four steps. And yeah, we can compare those four steps to one of the areas. I would really like to compare it um, on the positive side of things to this place, the towers of Simiatu up in the Andes. Um, and our first you know, part or step was ensure access. Why? Because we saw that many other crags near Quito or near other cities in Ecuador were getting lost through or by not having formal access. And for us on the Andean countries or Spanish-speaking countries, formality is a big deal. Having things written, uh, contracts, you know, the word of someone is, is valuable, but uh, the written word of someone is, is more for our culture. So having the formality of having access was extremely important. And that's why with the indigenous communities of Simiatu, that was our first step. 
Like, this is what we are, this is what we're going to do. Yes or no, pretty much, question. Like, do we have your permission to do this? Or do, do we, we don't? And if we don't, then what can we do, you know, to make it work? So that was step number one, ensure fair access. And uh, we got it. That was really positive back in 2018. Then remember the strike happened, so we had to rearrange things in 2019, but we got it as well. Um, then the second, the second part is a global problem that is happening all in the Andean countries right now and many other places in the world, I am aware, uh, which was re replaced expired infrastructure. So I'm talking not only about, you know, bolts and anchors, I'm talking about latrines, houses, trails, uh, signs, stuff like that, uh, that made uh, the user safe and also have, uh, you know, more comfortable or more, I would say, a positive experience overall. And in the case of Simiatu, we did not have to replace any bolts or anchors because we were literally the first people to ever climb there, which was on the athlete part of things incredible because we put up so many first ascents. Some of them are pretty, um, some of them are pretty badass, I guess. Uh, but most <laughs> mo most of them were designed so that people could repeat them, and the Ecuadorian people could, you know, improve their skills in track climbing and multi pitch track climbing. Um, but we did have to replace certain other things, and this is when the concept of the minga came up, which I I was trying to explain to people. I hope I did a good job last year on the on the advocacy conference. Um, the concept of the minga is an Andean tradition where everybody pitches in with labor in order to either solve a problem or create a common good. So we had to replace and construct a latrine, for example, or trails, or clean up the community house uh, that was falling apart. And when you summon the minga, the indigenous people participate and you participate as well with your crew and then at the end you share a meal. So it's also like a bonding experience, it's a community experience as well. Like you see a lot of their culture. And that's pretty cool, especially in places, in indigenous places of Ecuador and Peru, where, where you have these Andean traditions that still coexist with, with modern life. Um, so that was step number two, right? Replace or, or, or help out with um, infrastructure. And then, Step number three is actually the action part of things where you where we where we developed what in touristic is called like a like a tangible product or the activity. Like what do you want here to do? Do you want to develop a bike park? Do you want to create create more climbing routes? Do you want to designate a camping area so people could go there and just camp if you're into camping? Or when it comes to bird watching, for example, in, in other locations like in Tangang. Uh, what are the birds that you can see here, the species? I mean, if you, if you ever take your hands, the Ecuadorian birding book, it's insane how big that thing is because Ecuador <laughs> is so diverse. So you're holding like this three-pound book in your hands with all the species. That's pretty cool. But that's another example. Um, what do you want to do? That's step number three. And if you want to do it, you know, just go do it. Go develop some climbing routes. Uh, in the case of Simiatug. And as to the day, I think we have there, I think it's 57 or 60 pitches between, you know, all the routes, something like that. Wow. In a couple of years. I know that for, for the U.S., those numbers are not, you know, most too impressive. But for us, that's a big deal. 
um, especially taking account the amount of resources we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last part is to promote it. But this is a double-edged sword because right. we want to promote it for the people and the user who wants to go there and keep it sustainable. We do not want to promote it for you know the big crowds that are going to go trash the area. And that's when we have, you know, have some problems trying to set up either rules or norms or something that, you know, people can read and give them, you know, responsibility. Like you are accountable for your actions in this place. And one of the things that happen a lot in Ecuador, in Peru, is that there is a lot of informality with the guiding industry. There is a lot of guides who are not certified or have no instruction that do adventure sports and sell their their you know services. So that's one of them. You know, we want to promote areas to be safe and users to have a safe experience, but also you know try to follow the rules. I think, and this is my opinion as an author, but I think that my books, the two books that I have published are written in order to access the right type of user. But as soon as you become an author, you are subject to critique. So a bunch of other people have told me like, you should not have published the book because now you're attracting this, this, and these profiles. So I totally respect yeah. that opinion, but I think that my books were designed for that purpose, you know, try to, to attract or to promote um, the right kind of user. Um, Ecuador is trying to become more of a touristic nation because um, we obviously, we knew it from the start, but oil production is not sustainable in the long term, plus all the environmental, you know, connotations that come with it. So we want to be more touristic. And in order to be more touristic, we need these four steps to actually, you know, be positive case studies. Mm-hmm. And I am proud to say like we 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 have achieved that, uh, even if our reach has been super small. Um, uh, but yeah, the towers of Simiatu are exactly that. I decided to incorporate a small chapter of that place in my guidebook and use like step number four to promote it, um, even if there were only a handful of routes. Because I was like, if people keep coming here, you will eventually see more routes, more development. And that will retribute in many ways. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that you might have gotten some criticism with publishing a guidebook. I think that can come with any area. You know, if you publish a guidebook, the word's going to get out that there is climbing here. It's going to draw more attention. You know, it happened here in Gunnison with the, when the guidebook came out in 2007, 2007, I think. It's almost 15 years old now. But, yeah, I think the author caught a little flack for it. And, like, oh, great, you know, it's going to be overrun. People are going to come out. And just, I don't, just don't think that was the case here. Um just one example, but uh, I also think there's some, you can provide a nice genuine perspective on an area with, with guidebook authoring. I spoke to the gentleman who runs the Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition up in North Fort Collins, and he's a guidebook author. And we talked about how guidebooking can be a form of advocacy because you can promote it well, promote it sustainably, and still like communicate the values of the area and it's still like an ethic before someone even maybe even gets there to visit it and i'm sure that was a prerogative of yours writing these guidebooks absolutely um especially because ecuador is a small country and uh you can you know 
put many parts of the country in one single product, which is the book, I mean, the tangible product, I was like, yeah, I mean, taking out all that's rock climbing related, this book is going to eventually give Ecuador a good name. Um, because you would travel, for example, to um, what's that store in, in, in Boulder to, I think it's Neptune's. Yeah, Neptune's. Yep, Neptune Mountaineer. And you saw guidebooks from everywhere. And I was like, where's the Ecuador guidebook? I mean, come on. Somebody <laughs> has to do this. Um, actually, this is this is interesting, but the, the guy who gave me the idea to print the first Ecuador guidebook, um, rest in peace. He 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 passed away. He is Dave Dave Peck, who was one of the rifle rifle yep uh, guy book authors because we met there by chance, and he was like, "Where are you from?" And I'm like, "I'm from Ecuador." And he's like, "Oh, I've never heard. There's climbing down there. Is there a guidebook?" And I was like, "No." So I should do it. <laughs> That's yeah. how the first guidebook got published, actually. Um, thanks to thanks to Dave. But but yeah, um, I mean, I, I I totally agree that you know, critique as an author and as a guidebook author will appear. Um, but I still believe that it's doing more, a lot more good than 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 bad. Right. Totally. I mean, I, I I'm pretty much of the notion like, with every new climber, everyone coming to an area, that's also potential for another advocate, and someone who will come to an area and appreciate it and want to take care of it too. So that's. That's kind of where I stand in this whole thing. <laughs> um, so, so many of the issues you, and stuff that you're talking just talking about, like bathrooms and trails and signage. I mean, these these issues are ubiquitous across the United States, and they're now, you know, I think it's coming to mind that they're ubiquitous across borders too. We're all kind of dealing with the same kind of things uh, across the globe. We just have to maybe go about them in a different manner and they have to get achieved in a different manner. It might be easier sometimes, might be harder other times, but is there, um, I would love to maybe just start to button things up here a little bit, but how does access and advocacy differ between these international communities? Like Ecuador might be international to me, the US might be international to you. Do you see any similarities or I guess we've highlighted a number of differences, but maybe any similarities between how this stuff works? Well, there's so many similarities. Um, I, I guess way more than, than differences. Um, and that's why with this organization that I am an ambassador with, it's called the Climbing Initiative. And to everyone who is going to be listening uh, to the, this episode, I mean, please check that organization out because the work is astonishing. People are incredible. Um, yep. And I became an ambassador last year for them. Um, so pretty much the Climate Initiative decided to create this document called Best Practices, which is going to be a written document that addresses all the problems worldwide that creating climate communities face. I'm talking from vaulting ethics to talking to rural or indigenous communities, like a huge spectrum. So from that spectrum, those are all the similarities of access issues that we have here and in the US or in places in Europe, for example. Um, there is a big issue in the Andean nations with um, constructing buildings in public land or in private land and then having the ownership of those buildings. 
that replicates, I think, also to places in the U.S. where a compost toilet has been built or a trail has been marked. And, and slowly by, you know, either the possession of private owners of the users, it has, you know, not worked as people would have enjoyed. Um, there is the case of Hatung Machai in Peru, for example, which is one of the best rock sport climbing areas ever, like astonishingly beautiful up in the Andes at 14,000 feet, very hard technical routes. Um, and there was a refugio there, like a house, a hut that was used for years and years and years. People from everywhere in the world used it. And then the place um, got burned to the ground and the toilets destroyed by the past owner because the past owner didn't have the, the permission from the community to keep, you know, making money out of this building. Very, very long story, but a sad story, sad case study. I went climbing there uh, this summer hoping to camp there for, you know, three nights. And we found the place so destroyed that we didn't even camp there. We commuted from, from the town of Huaraz every day. Um, so in order to address all the similarities between nations that are facing the same problem, the climbing initiative is, is developing with authors from worldwide. Um, this document called Best Practices. And, and I am super psyched. I am a, one of the contributing authors for a chapter but I'm really, really psyched that that's going to be published soon. Yeah, me too. And we would be remiss not to mention the climbing initiative in this episode because I had Veronica and Danny on, uh, I think like 10 episodes ago, geez, that was almost a year ago. And we know we discussed your work and some other international work and the best practices and everything. And what an awesome organization that Veronica has, has gotten going here. And I think it fills a really nice niche um, you know, the Access Fund is focused on conservation and keeping climbing areas open and open and stewarded. And now we got the climbing initiative focusing on another realm of of advocacy, and it just it fits a really nice role that I don't think was quite filled before. And um, I'm so glad that you're an ambassador for them now. I'm actually a contributing author as well to the best practices, so awesome. really looking forward to that document coming out. It's going to be so incredibly helpful. What a wonderful resource resource it's going to be. That is great. Yeah, <clears throat> totally agree. And and yeah, big shout out to Veronica, Danny, and Nikki, and Tyler, Scott, everyone that you know works behind the climate initiative. Like huge shout out. I'm I'm super happy to help as much as I can uh, from yeah. my perspective of things in this side of the world. Yeah, they're uh, they're proud to have you. I reached out to Veronica uh, before we um started our conversation we talked about some questions and stuff would be good to talk about and she had you know just glowing things to say about you felipe so i'm so psyched you're part of it and i'm so happy for our conversation today it's been just so powerful it's um just i it did not fall short of my expectations so thank you so much for your time and good luck on your expedition on friday uh best of luck and, and safety and everything and before i let you go um I ask everyone what their definition of advocacy is at the end of the conversation. And I've been doing it for almost a year now. I've gotten a lot of great answers and just reflecting on a lot of the answers that I've heard so far. It's just, to me, advocacy is just, um, it's not ambiguous, but it is what you want to make it. And it could be participated in, in so many different forms and the work that you're doing in, in Ecuador and, and providing these diverse opportunities for these rural communities is outstanding and you should be so proud of it. So before I let you go, I would love to hear what your definition of advocacy is. 
thank you. Thanks for everything, uh, Peter. And well, thanks once more to the Access Fund and, and pretty much everyone else that has given me the opportunity to speak up and share. Uh, I'm very, very thankful. For me, advocacy, uh, interesting because when you when you translate it to Spanish, it means uh, it's a totally different thing. Um, but in the English uh, meaning, for me, it's it's support. Like you you want to support something, a cause, an idea. That's that's what it means to me. And when people call me like an advocate, to um, for example. Well, this happened recently. I don't want to elaborate on this, but people come me, oh, you're an advocate of uh, BIPOC groups. And I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, am I a supportive of, of the BIPOC groups and idea? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So it makes sense. Um, that's that's what it means to me, to support something. So if people were to ask me, are you, uh, are you an advocate of rock climbing? Absolutely, yes. Are you an advocate of, of rural communities and indigenous communities in the Andean nation? Then absolutely yes. So yeah, I think that's it. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can, that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org. So check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.